Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. Sadly, this is my last week teaching because Pastor Steve will be back next week. So let me give you my virtual tears for those listening and uh, end with a bang. So let's open it up in prayer and then we'll get started. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for today, Father. We praise that you're in, uh, with us in the midst of all the challenging times we're going through, Father. Give us peace. Give us wisdom in making decisions. And give us ears to listen to the Bible study. We hope it reaches everyone and it feeds them and it teaches them. And it allows them to know you further, Lord. We just praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so today we have two chapters. chapter eleven, Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 12. I'm not sure we'll have time to do both, but we're going to give it a go. So, first slide. Uh, oh, wait a second. What's going on here? I'm going to stop real quick. All right, so we're back from the technical difficulty. You know, with technology comes technical difficulties. But we're back. So those of you listening, you're missing out on the technical difficulty and the PowerPoint. But here we are. We're going to start in chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. So I'm going to give you a quick preview of what the chapter is about. And then we'll start with a couple of verses. And then what I'd like to do, I don't know, for those of you that were paying attention last week. So I'll give the first couple of verses and then we'll go into some maps, some interactions, some some interactive things to to illustrate the the context of what's going on. So in Acts chapter 11, Peter has to vindicate himself. Uh, And we'll see that coming, you know, how, how so in that sense. The gospel succeeds in Antioch and the surrounding areas. Barnabas began in Antioch and Paul joined them in surrounding areas. So, you know, they... Barnabas goes to uh, to Antioch and then Paul joins in. And we'll find out why that is uh, when we get to that section. And then a famine approaches and the Gentiles actually helped out when that occurred. So, let's start with verses 1 and 2. And 3. 1 and 2 and 3. Alright, so now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with them saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So here we're going to essentially see a recap of chapter 10. But there's a couple of things to note. Number one, from a theological perspective, this was huge. So, were Gentiles, the Gentiles have a path to salvation prior to this particular event in Acts chapter 10? You mean before the New Testament? Before the New Testament, yeah. The answer would be, yeah, they did. So in Nineveh, in, in Jonah, there were Gentiles, and they had a path to salvation. So it wasn't necessarily that that was the issue. We're going to find out exactly what was the issue. So uh, it was was it it was the Holy Spirit. That's the, the key difference. That was happening to Gentiles. So, yeah, in the Old Testament, Gentiles in Nineveh were, had a path to salvation. They were preached on. They were preached to. But why were they so upset with Peter? Were they upset with Peter because he preached the gospel to Gentiles, or was it something else? So the, there's a clue in there, and that's actually in, in the quotes. What was the, So this is key here to find out why the real issue, we're going to see the real issue going on right now. And it wasn't necessarily that he was teach, preaching the gospel or, or, you know, or praying with, with Gentiles. But he it, with it was how he ate with them. See, the Jews at the time were so traditional... And so stuck to their ways that that was more of a big deal than actually praying with them. So, <clears throat> you know, and, and you can see in the language, uh, you you went to our circ- uncircumcised men and ate with them. And it is like that was the offensive thing, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so, you know, it's still a learning lesson. Peter's still learning through all of this. And, you know, he's realizing that, you know, yeah. I ate with them. You know, God told me to. He had that vision. Remember chapter 10 about the animals, the clean and unclean. And now he's really putting things into perspective because now people are coming at him saying, you ate with them. And now he's like, he's having those aha moments with that vision he had earlier on. And, you know, I'm going to stop real quick here and talk and basically say, does this still kind of happen today? Yes. It does, unfortunately. You know, we have churches when they, when they preach heresy, that's different. That, of course, you don't, you know, we don't, we don't associate with, with, with churches that don't preach, you know, the true gospel. But sometimes, you know, I'll give you a personal example. Like, 
you tend to be in the charismatic side. Some conservatives tend to be not so much, and this and that. And you know what? We're all in the body of Christ. We all believe in the essentials. You know, I have a lot of good friends that are on the charismatic side, and I love them, and I pray with them, and I eat with them, and I fellowship with them. And that's not going to change just because I'm an SBC or, you know, whatever denomination you could be, right? So, you know, you can see some of that, you know, kind of somewhat similar going on in the first uh, three verses here, chapter 11. Let me show you guys a map of, uh, this is, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of Peter's, uh, Peter's uh, travels here. So, and the reason why I want to show you this is because I want to give context how much traveling he did during this time. I mean, it's not like you pick up a car and drive 40 minutes, 30 miles, right? This, they were traveling. So, like, in uh, number one, which is up here, from number one to number two, this travel right here, right? That's Peter and John visiting Samaria to help Philip. Okay? Number two, so that's basically Acts chapter 8. So, number one and two are basically Acts chapter 8. So that's number two here. You go back to Jerusalem. So keep in, I want to point this out. Jerusalem is the center of Christianity, right? Keep that in mind. So, uh, because I'm going to come back to that. Or if we get to chapter 12, I'm going to make a mention of that. Number three, Peter visits Lida and heals the Aeneas. And that's chapter, Acts chapter 9. So th- I, I don't know if I'm butchering the names, how I pronounce them, but that's how I'm pronouncing them. So number three, uh, you know, there's that's basically Acts chapter 9. And then 5, 6, and 7 are essentially chapter 10 that we're, that, that uh, uh, Luke is referring to when he's writing Acts. So 5 is basically uh, the soldiers, Cornelius' soldiers going to Joppa. 6 is Peter traveling back with the soldiers. And then 7 is Peter preaching. And, it, you know, the preaching, so the preaching happened here. So it happened here. These people here are going to hear about what happened here. So word's going to get around, right? That this is something's going on there. Alright, so let me give you another map. So when he went from, when Peter went from Caesarea to Judea, he took an even longer route. You can see this is the actual route he took, according to historians and people that study, right? So, you know, he took a, you know, pretty lengthy route. And just think about it. By the time he got there, people kind of already knew what was going on. So, you know... It's interesting. I wanted to show you know the 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 the, the you know the the, gra- the severity of what was going on here. Like like this is Christianity growing. This is huge, you know. Um, here I want to show you this particular uh, example. This is basically a like how Christianity spread, right? So you can see it starts with Jerusalem, and it goes all the way to Rome, basically. Right? That was basically the known world. And right now we're around. We're between here and here. We're going to be covering this little time period here, which is Samaria, Damascus, and Antioch. Damascus will not be mentioned a whole lot in chapters 11 or 12, if any at all. You know, chapter 10 is obviously Samaria, and, uh, and then Antioch is going to be 11 and 12. So, but you can see that this is crucial, because it leads to, you know, this is still within Israel, right? What we know today as Israel. Uh, what happened to my thing here? And then, you know, as you get to, now Asia Minor and all that, that's outside of Israel. So I wanted to point that out. So this is huge right here, and it starts with Jerusalem. Right, so I wanted to give a little context of what's going on. Let's go ahead and read the next couple of verses. It's going to be four through six. Uh, but when but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, "I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in the trance I saw a vision, and an object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four cor- uh, corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I fixed my gaze on it, and I was observing, I saw the four-footed animal of the earth." And the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. So basically, he's he's recapping. Uh, he's recapping chapter ten, right? Uh, number verses seven through eleven. And I I also heard a voice saying to me, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat." But I said, "By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth." But a voice from heaven answered a second time, "What has gone cleansed you no longer consider unholy." Again, you know, he's saying this as he's keeping in mind people have just accused him of not eating with uh, uncircumcised men, right? This happened three times and every everything was drawn back up in the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent from Caesarea. And then uh, 12 through 15, I guess it's the recap of the whole thing. Uh, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had sent an angel, how he had seen an angel standing in his house saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. 
you and your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did upon us at the beginning. So, a couple of things here. It's, it, I, I, whenever I read the New Testament, I was, you know, how is it similar to the Old Testament? Just from a literature standpoint. How is it similar? The way they were retelling stuff? Right. The way they retell, right? They, they, I mean, it's detailed. I mean, yeah, you just read it once and you're going to read the exact same thing again. It's like, when you look, when you read numbers, it's like, it's pretty detailed, right? Or when you read the beginning of John, you know, and they give the lineage of Jesus, it's pretty detailed. And, you know, Luke, as he's writing, takes pleasure in being just as detailed. Little side bit there. Uh, now, on verse 12, it says, without mis- misgiv- misgivings, uh, sorry, without misgivings. Yep. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. What does that mean? So, um, interesting that as others recounted that story, they would actually omit that part. In other words, without misgivings means you're making no distinctions between Jew and Gentile, right? So, the Spirit told me to go there and not discriminate between one or the other, treat them the same. But, you know, when you look at other outside writings and other Jews would, would share that story, they would actually leave that part out. And Luke was very careful in putting that part in there. So again, talks about the detailed orientation of, of Luke. He was a great historian, you know, and, and um, he was very good at his writing. So they omitted this part because they were being, they were still prejudiced. They still had prejudice in them. It hadn't gone away, you know. And then on number 15, it says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. So at the beginning, what is Peter referring to there? Pentecost. Pentecost. He's referring to Acts chapter 2. Thank you, Lazaro. Very good. So now uh, we're going to go through, uh, and I apologize for that. Let me see. So now we're going to go through verse 16, right? And we're, we have a bunch of notes here, so be ready. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after the begin after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I that I could stand in God's way? Peter talking, right? And lastly, in verse 18 here, when they heard this, they, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted us to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And I underline repentance here for a reason. I'll get to that right now. But um, I'm going to refer, for verse 16, I'm going to refer to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. You know, it also says right there, Gathering them together, he commanded, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. So, you know, the promise which, you know, this is Jesus talking about, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not so many days from now. So he's referencing that, right? He's saying baptized with water, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter is referencing basically the events of, of chapter 1. All right? And then verses 15 and 16, when you look at verses 15 and 16, uh, it talks about the beginning baptized with water. He's there, you know, this is actually affirming the beginning of the church age. Right? So this is the, you know, now we're entering the beginning of the church age. You can see that by the way it's being written, by the way it's being explained, that that's actually going on in the, you know, at their very eyes, right? You know, um, let me see, with verse 17, God gave Gentiles the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is Peter to object? Basically, Peter was saying, who am I to object? God's, you know, God's gift to everybody, right? So, again, salvation is a work of God. Again, you know, you read it, right? Peter saying, who am I to get in God's way? Because God initiates the work, right? So, further, you know, you think, you think about theologically these things. It's like, yeah, why am I, you know, if I try to get in the way, God's going to get the work done. I'm a, it's futile. Resistance is futile, basically, how that saying goes, right? So, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the message of the Bible is very clear. We have nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. Is God's work from beginning to end. Right? And then in verse 18, uh, being that, when you keep in mind that God initiated, God initiates everything, there's two conclusions or two results that came out of that. And when people, especially it says right there, when they heard this, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, right? So basically they accepted it. And these led, these led to two realizations. People came to two realizations at this point. Number one, um, it it uh, it it persevered. It preserved the unity in the body of Christ. So the church, the, the church could have broken up at that point. If the people hadn't accepted that, they could have caused a drift in the church, 
right before the church, the church is beginning, and right at the beginning they were going to have division right off the bat. But this actually, their acceptance of that, you know, they, when they quieted down and, and glorified God, saying, well, if God has granted the Gentiles repentance, you know, basically when they came to that acceptance point, it preserved the church, that you need the body of Christ to stay united. So this is huge as well. You think about it, because that could have been a really bad moment had people been, you know, not willing to accept that. And uh, the second thing is that uh, it started separating Christians. It began the separation of Christians from Jewish peoples. Now, you know, preaching everywhere. Verse, Jewish people were temple, temple, you know. Now you're starting to see that separation. That's the second realization that was coming out of it. Christians and Jews were starting to be not the same. You're starting to see a separation. And you will see later on how that plays out. And to keep that in mind because something huge will eventually happen out of that as well. But these are the two things that happen. Um, you know, and to me, this is again Diego's commentary now, Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit was huge. Because now, we, you know, we call each other, right? Whenever we talk to each other, you know, my wife, but when I talk to like friends or something, what do you say? We're brothers in Christ. Right? Oh, he's my friend, but we're brothers in Christ. You know, that, that sort of thing started happening here. You know, and we still use that language today. You know, we're brothers in Christ because now, you know, no Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. We're all the same. They started realizing that. And that's why today we use that term, brothers in Christ, because, yeah, you know, you might be Arab or you might be, you know, Jewish or you might be formerly whatever faith you used to be before. But when you come to Christ, guess what? We're brothers in Christ. And that, you know, that's sort of this, uh, this, uh, not, not distincting anybody from their background, that sort of equal unity starting to happen right here. thought that was, again, that's my own little side bit, but... Uh, you know, wanted to come back to this map because, again, Samaria, now we're, in Ant- we're about to approach Antioch. So what about Damascus, right? So I wanted to give you a little background on Damascus. Paul got saved in Damascus. That's why it's there, right? Paul got saved in Damascus. So that was around chapter 9. So I wanted to come back to that because I want to show you, when you're looking at this, some of these things are going on concurrently. Some of them are going on, you know, the way history is being told. They don't have the internet. It doesn't happen instantly. So, you know, but just know that Damascus, you know, that's where Paul got saved. On the road to Damascus, right? That's what they say, right? So, we're going to go through verse 19 now. We might have time to do the whole thing, I think. We'll see. So, so now we're entering, on. you look at your outlines, you know, we're starting on the second bullet point there. So now we're going to talk about Antioch a little bit. This is, this is very, very big. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, uh, with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came out to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So, in the end, in the end of, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 7, and I remember Adrian, you telling me about this, Stephen is killed, right? Now let me show you guys, the. this is the verse that I just read. I'm sorry, I'm not keeping up with this, right? We're going to be referring to this map quite a bit. Because if you look at number one here, that's literally what I just read. Scattered, right? So, you know, from Jerusalem, you see they, go, they, they, get, they get scattered. So I'm just going to go over here. They get scattered to Sidon, Antioch, Cyprus. And in that, and, and as they do that, start preaching the Word of God. Right? And, um, and Stephen's death was supposed to put an end to Christianity and actually caused even more of a spreading, if you think about it. So, in verse 20, uh, verse 20, I think it's, if you read it, let's read it one more time. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came and Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So in the Bible, we know that, that the quote-unquote heroes of the Bible, right? Peter, the, the, 12, apostles, the 12 disciples, you know, the apostles, uh, Paul, you know, you get to have some names, but here, these heroes go unnamed. We don't know who they are. We don't know. We'll, maybe one day we'll meet them in heaven. But these are like unsung heroes of the faith. Because they, they, they see somebody get killed and they're being spread. And we'll never know their name. We'll never know who they were. But we'll tell you one thing. They were preaching the word of God. And they were preaching it to the point where salvation was increasing. Unknown heroes of the Bible. Man, verse 20 tells you, man. I mean, not even. I mean, look at just a little mention in there, right? But their impact was so huge, and we don't even know their names. 
We don't know who they were. Well, maybe there was another Palamon. Who knows, right? Maybe they had visions too. You know, who knows what happened? But but we'll never know because unfortunately we don't know who they were. You know, so <laughs> that's number two in the match. So this is you know when they go to Antioch and start preaching and salvation starts passing. Unsung heroes of the Bible, unknown heroes of the Bible. You know, and they've had just as much impact as you know in spreading the word of God. And you know, I think it's just uh, you know when they say when in verse twenty one when it says turn to the Lord, we're talking about more salvation. You know, and uh, you know the fact that they sent Barnabas. Let's talk about why Barnabas was sent for a minute. Earlier on, they had sent Peter and John to check up on Philip's ministry in Samaria. That was that happened earlier on, right? So that that's why they couldn't send anybody else. So they sent Barnabas all the way, you know, all the way to Antioch, which is about 300 miles north. Uh, let me see. Yeah. So Barnabas is 300 miles north. So I guess the map is a little weird like that. So yeah, so they had to travel th- uh, 300 miles north. But why did they choose Barnabas? Barnabas, by the way, was an excellent choice. They knew who they were picking, right? They knew who to send. But why was he such a good choice? And we're going to read about that later on. But I want to show you guys. Why was, why was he such a good choice? So let me see number three. Or number three oh yeah. So this the, the teal line is basically Barnabas going to Antioch, right? But why was he such a good choice? Where was where was Barnabas from? Little clue. Refer to Acts four thirty six. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And we were just learning that, you know, they were going to Cyprus to preach the word. So, you know, let's send a guy that's from that land that knows how to relate to those people. Right? So they sent him because he was from Cyprus. All right, we're uh, going to jump back and forth real quick between... uh, Yeah. We're going to read pretty soon, actually, in uh, in Acts 4.37. Another reason why he was chosen. He was charitable. And he had a good reputation. So in Acts 4.37 it states, you know, talking about Barnabas, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was charitable. He was from Cyprus. He was charitable. They liked him. He had a good reputation. And he was a true believer. They knew his heart, right? And um, number three, he was he was a good man. And keep, keep an eye on the word good, because that's going to mean something later on. But relatively speaking, because, you know, this is not a contradiction. You know, no, there's no one good but God. This is just, relatively speaking, he was a good man, right? And we're going to see that in verse 24 right now. But I want to show you the map. You know, that's Barnabas traveling. All these things are going on. We're gonna, this map is going to be the map to be used for the rest of the two chapters because it, it just plays such an important role in church history and the church age and all that. And so let's go to verse 23. Let's jump on ahead. So, verse 23. Then when he, talking about Barnabas, arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found them, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, again, we just, a few verses earlier, talk about, you know, the two realizations, right? The church unity, when, when people accepted that, um, that, that, you know, the Gentiles were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit too. It preserved unity, and then they started, you know, finally distinguishing, you know, one from the other. And within a year, we had a name called Christian. But before we get to that, what was the first thing that... Barnabas began to do when he saw what was happening in Antioch. It says it right there. He rejoiced. He began to he rejoiced and began to encourage. You know, Barnabas actually literally means encouragement. So he's being true to his name. <laughs> so Barnabas means encouragement, and what does he do? He encourages. <laughs> so man, this guy was I talk about a godly guy, right? So you know, and the reason why he rejoiced and encouraged was 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 obvious. He, there was only one conclusion he could draw from what he saw. That it was a work of God. It couldn't have been anything else. So he, he recognized it right away. And being that he was a good man, you know, charitable from Cyprus, man, he just went all in 
and began to rejoice with them and encouraging them. You know, and, and, and Barnabas, and this is why he was the right choice. They knew, you know, God, God, providence, man, he, he knew who to send at that time. Right? Let me read uh, how Luke describes Stephen on Acts 6, chap- Acts, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Right? So this is how Stephen was described. The Testament found approval with them, with the whole congregation, and they gave Stephen a man of full faith and of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it goes on and on after that. But what's the difference between Stephen's description and Barnabas' description? So, think, think about Luke the writer, right? He was writing this. So, he describes Stephen as full of faith and full of, uh, full of faith and uh, full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas is the same, but Barnabas actually had an extra, and he was a good man. So Barnabas was the only one in the whole book of Acts that Luke referred to as a good man. The only one. Read all of Acts, nobody else is described as good, except Barnabas. Not even Stephen, who was martyred. So, you know, it just tells you, Luke, (laughs) man, he, he must have had some affection for this dude, for this guy, you know. He must, I mean, and not just him, but everybody. What a reputation that you know, he gets called good on top of full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. You know, it is just, you know, profound, I think. You know, when you read these things and you read those little details that, you know, good only applied to Barnabas. And you can see it. He rejoiced, he jumped with them, you know, he, he, he prayed with them. And so, you know, he realized too, and you know, he you know, he realized that things were happening really fast. Like, you know, salvations were happening. And so he, oh man, I need help. I better call, I better call, I better go get Paul. You know, because... <laughs> Because things were happening and it was beyond his control. Like he couldn't handle it all, right? So he went and got, got help. And he got Paul. He went and, hey, Paul, you know, you got to see what's going on here. You know, and Paul, good reputation. You know, he's good. Full of, Paul's like, oh, yeah, better go check it out. You know, so he, go, he goes there and checks it out. So now now in verse 26, the, the word Christians, is the first time we hear the word Christians in the New Testament, right? And the I-A-N part, right, means belonging to a party, you know, we all we all heard that word Christian. I'm sure I don't know if you guys have heard this in the Latin Latin word Christianus. You know, uh, I literally copy and pasted that. What can I say? But it means belonging to a party, and they were obviously Jesus's party, right? But let me ask you: do you think so, you know, do you think that term had a positive or negative connotation when it was first used? Negative. Negative. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a friendly term at all. You know. Uh, you know, it, the word Christian is only used, uh, I believe, it's two other times in the Old Testament. In uh, in uh, in Peter, First Peter, they use it, and in Acts twenty six. And uh, you know, they finally recognized believers of Christ as a distinct group, even though they were negatively connotated. Now they're a separate group. They're no longer Jews that believe in Jesus. Now they're Christians. So you know, it's, it's this is huge. This is this is definitely church growth happening. Church age is beginning because now. Now they're not just, you know, a sect of Jew, Judaism. Now they're like a separate group of Christians, right? And so, let's close this little section here with this. How did Barnabas encourage? How did Barnabas encourage? Because that's he encouraged, right? How did, he, how did he encourage them? How did he encourage the people over there? The answer is within the sentence. But, you know, I just want you know, like, how do you encourage somebody? When you encourage somebody, how do you encourage somebody? Yeah, he just jumped right into the party. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, he just jumped right in. That's encouraging, right? So, um, you know, and he rejoiced with them, and he was treating them the same. I mean, he saw no distinction, and when people noticed that, he's like, oh, this guy from from Jerusalem, you know, is not treating us any different. That's encouraging. So, you know, church is in full effect. And also, one thing to point out, I'm going to go back to the map here. You notice where Antioch is? Here, there you go. I like this one better. Antioch is is a is a port town, right? It's a, it's by the sea. It's a port, you know. A, a basically, like think of it like Long Beach. Like it's in a port. It's, it's basically there's commerce going on at that time during in that time. So that means that Antioch was actually a pretty diverse town. People from all over the world went there, and so when they were getting saved, they were taking that message all over the world. The, the impact that Antioch had is is just it's amazing. But yeah. So he, you know, he, I mean, from Cyprus, you know, 
Barnabas from Cyprus goes to Antioch, starts rejoicing with them, treating them as equals, rejoicing, encouraging them. And next thing you know, you have a, a real explosion of Christianity. So let's go now to uh, Acts 27 through 30. This is Agabus and Barnabas and Paul. So that's, I believe, is the third bullet point, Adrian, or yeah. third bullet point? Yeah, third bullet point. So let's read uh, 27 through 30. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be, certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the re, in the, under the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had me- means, each... Oh, let me start all over again. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them, each of them uh, determined to send a contribution for relief to the brethren living in Judea. And so they did this, sending it in charge to Barnabas and Saul to the elders. A couple of things here. In, uh, in verse 27... When it talks about the prophets coming down to Jerusalem, I'm going to cross-reference verses, Ephesians 2.20. Right? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? So basically, apostles and prophets were the cornerstone of Christianity. And so it makes sense that you see prophets going there. Because they also saw what was going on. And at this time, there were prophets. And they went. So prophets, apostles, cornerstone, uh, uh, Jesus is the cornerstone, but those two are foundation of Christianity, right? So Agabus, Agabus uh, is mentioned in uh, Acts 21 uh, as well. And uh, he correctly foretold a famine all over the world. If you look at outside writings, there was in fact a famine. It happened. And um, all over the world though, was it really all over the world? So during this time, all over the world really just meant the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the world. You, know, you got to keep context in there, right? So it wasn't like a global pandemic, or global, I'm sorry, not pandemic, I have the coronavirus on my mind. It wasn't like a global famine, right, where, you know, oh, how come there's no evidence in, you know, Puerto Rico that there was a famine? Because all over the world did not mean Puerto Rico, it meant Roman Empire, that's why. So, you know, and people have brought it up to me, and like, come on, man. So, uh, anyways, uh, in verse, uh, and let me go look for the map here. Go back to my trusty map. This is number eight on your map. So we're going to go back to the verse here. Oh, going the wrong direction. On verse 29, uh, you know, the fact that Gentiles, uh, you know, helped, they created a bond. And let me cross reference Romans 15 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so. This is referring to this also, and they were and they are indebted to them, for the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things. They are indebted to minister to them and also in material things. We do this today too, right? Help out other churches, help out other believers. You know, the, the Gentiles did it right away. A famine came out, and they, they started helping, and they and they began to help. So, um, in verse thirty, is interesting. The word elders. This is the first time that term is used in the Bible from a church order standpoint, right? First time it's used. So Saul and Barnabas took the money to elders, right? And elders in churches, as you know, they have an oversight. Their role is oversight, right? They have an, and they have oversight in all, all aspects of ministry. So this is how, you know, you're starting to see the church is beginning and you're starting to see some church order already. So then they, started, they had elders, they took care of the money, they took care of all aspects of ministry. So you're starting to see some some order beginning to form. They're not just a bunch of guys getting together and, and, and rejoicing. And they started putting order to the way things were being done. So that was pretty neat. And that's actually the end of chapter 11. Wow, I guess we are going to get through most of it here. So some final notes for context, okay? Jesus died in approximately 31 AD. Some people say 33, okay, 31, 33, a couple of years. I get it, you know. But 31 AD or 33 is also the year that Acts Pentecost happened. So it wasn't short, it was shortly after that, that after Jesus' death that we had Pentecost. Paul was saved in approximately 33 AD. So by 40 AD, and by 40 AD is when people were being called Christians. So in those seven years. Seven years 
without internet, without telephones, without you know, quick methods of communication, Christianity was spreading like crazy. Right? Paul's ministry was from around 40 to 66, roughly, you know, give or take. So, you know, the first, uh, you know, few years there, he, Paul's getting ready to start his own ministry as well. We're going to talk about that later on. But give you a perspective, man, around 40 AD, that's when things are really cooking in Christianity. Right? So that's the end of chapter 11. Any questions in chapter 11? I think 740. Should we do chapter 12? Should we begin in chapter 12? Should we leave chapter 12 next week? What do you think, Adrian? Because yeah, there's a lot to say in chapter 12 too. Yeah. Let me give you a little preview of chapter 12. How about that? And then we'll let Pastor Steve teach it next week. He has all the notes done for him. <laughs> Cheater. All right. Actually, there is one part I want to read in chapter 12, and then I'll stop. So let me read this one part, and that's it. Okay, in, cha- in Acts chapter 12, we're going to learn that persecution has not stopped. Obviously. Right? And expansion in the, you know, in the Jerusalem area is starting to reach its limit. So a new adventure awaits, right? And what do I mean by that? Again, look at the map here. You know, Antioch. From Antioch, he jumps right to Asia Minor. Yep, that's the limit of, you know, Jerusalem, Antioch. And one of the things you'll learn is that from from here, from Acts 12 on, Antioch, even though it's the second church, it becomes the focal point of Christianity. No longer Jerusalem, now it becomes Antioch. So I wanted to leave that there. Uh, the key verse will be twelve sixteen, where God answers despite God God answers prayers despite doubts. We'll see what that means. And uh, yeah, and then let's start with the verse first four verses, and then we'll we'll, we'll stop at that point. So let's let's just read the first four verses, and we'll stop there because uh, Steve will have some work to do. So number one. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days, this was during the, uh, the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized them, he put them in a prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out before the people. So, number one, who's this Herod that we talk about here? Is this the Herod of Jesus' time, or is this another Herod? It's actually Herod's, uh, Herod the Great's grandson, so lineage. So, this is the, so, so grandfather killed the Jewish babies, and, you know, and, and this, the grandson is killing, <laughs> is killing to the... This Herod family is really into killing, right? So, um, you know, and here, you know... Uh, Herod the Great was actually dead by then. Matthew to, uh, Matthew two verse nineteen it says, "But when Herod died, when Herod died, so you know we knew Herod had already died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. You know, and we go right. So this is actually Herod of Agrippa the first, the grandson of Herod the Great, and apparently cruelty did run in the family. So uh, death with a, with death with with a sword. So what type of death do you think it was? I know it's obviously with the sword, but was it? Execution, beheading. What was the preferred method of killing people at that time? And it's crazy you have to say preferred method. It was, be- it was likely a beheading, but there's no confirmation, obviously. But, uh, you know, uh, criminals, apostates, they were all beheaded. So, likelihood it was beheading as well. But it could have just been a good old-fashioned, you know, sword, sword thrust, right? But let me... Interesting thing, right? We just read chapter 11. And what are, what are some of the things we read in chapter 11? Some of the theme, if you will, the theme of the writing, the tone of the writing. What did we get out of chapter 11? The church is growing. Well, yes. Encouraging. I'm looking at you, Liz, because I think you, I think you have the answer. So let me tell you how chapter 11 sounded to me when I read it, right? Oh my gosh! And two angels appeared, and then told me to go here, and then there, and we preached the word, and you know, and 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 you know, and, and Barnabas is rejoicing with them and encouraging them, and then and then chapter twelve and beheading, yeah. and killing, <laughs> and uh, blah, and uh, Debbie Downer time, right? But he wanted to give Luke. I mean, this is Luke's Luke's style, man. When he writes, it's just like really positive on one end, and then in the very next chapter, and we go to the re- back to reality. Hey, look, this is good, but. Check it. Check out. This is still going on. The tone of the writing. The world was trying to silence it. The tribe was trying to silence it. Yeah. 
So we start, and not only that, but in chapter 12, we start with an execution. I mean, it's verse 2, John was put to death. So not only does he bring the tone back down, but he brings it down a lot. I mean, the first thing he talks about is execution. Not only execution, but someone prominent, right? <laughs> James was executed. So he, he, he changes the mood drastically because he's trying to tell us something. And we're going to find out what he tells us later. Um, a couple of quick tidbits here. Uh, Josephus, for those of you that have read Josephus' writing, I've read a little bit, but not this part, obviously. But it states there that Herod, this particular King Herod, had a good relationship with the Jews, actually. So he had a good relationship with the Jews, and this is why he's killing Christians. <laughs> so the Jewish like that. So, you know, um, but it's not necessarily the killing that was the good relationship part. It was the fact that King Herod was willing to act. He wasn't going to let this slide. He was going to take action, whether it was, you know, killing or whatever it was. But he was taking action, and the Jews actually liked that. And they had a good relationship, you know. And, uh, you know, so, but keep in mind, here, keep, this, is what, this is what I was uh, talking to, uh, talking about this, is that outside sources validate what Luke is writing. Luke is a historian. This is, this is history. This is not, you know, you know allegories. How do, we, how do unbelievers describe the Bible? Oh, it's just a book. It was written by man. It was a, they give all these excuses to the Bible, but when we start studying the Bible, you realize that these accounts are real. They happen. These are not just phony stories. And so this is, and the reason why I'm talking about that is because there's, there's when, when, so when, when it's so, so historically accurate, whenever it talks about the supernatural, it makes sense. Why would you be so historically accurate and then all of a sudden throw curveballs, you know, about angels appearing or this and that, you know? No, it's because it must have really happened, right? So if he's, you know, credibility, right? If you're right nine times out of, you know, ten times out of ten, and you read nine of them, ten times probably going to be true too, you know? So that's that's why Luke is going into so much detail talking about all these things. It's like, yeah, I'm going to give you all this correct history that's verifiable to, with outside sources. And so when I talk about angels appearing, guess what? I'm telling you the truth. It really happened, you know? And, uh, uh, let's see. Unleavened bread. What holiday was, uh, what holiday was that? You know how many manuscripts I had to read to figure that out? Like, I went through all these manuscripts to read that. I'm just kidding. Luke, Luke 22, Luke 22, Luke 22, 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called Passover. There you go. <laughs> I made you laugh. I made Adrian laugh. That was the whole point of this. It was an Adrian joke. <laughs> That's why I married her. Okay. So, you know, the culmination of Passover was going to be Peter's execution. Right? So, like, Passover and the grand finale is Peter's going to die. Right? So, I'm going I'm to stop right there. Not 7.50. I'm going to stop right there. and um, Or should I keep going? You know what? Let me, let, me, let me just do this part and that's it. So, these are King Herod coins. Actual coins of King Herod of Agrippus I. So, further validation that it's true. Right? And when they put uh, Peter in a prison, this is what it was like. So, you would enter to the bond and you would basically be in a dungeon. I mean, this is horrible, isn't it? And then on top of that, he had guards. I mean, how do you escape? And the reason why I'm highlighting that is because, as we find out, he will escape. And so how do you escape? <laughs> you know, So when, he, when Luke is talking about history and being correct and everything, and he's going to talk about Peter escaping, that, and for those of you who are watching just on, listening just on podcast, you're totally missing out on the PowerPoint. <laughs> but it's a miracle. It's an underground sewer. You know? Right. So then we go back to the map, because uh, this map, chapter 12, really only applies to... Number 6, 7, and 10. So, 6 being Jerusalem. 7 being, you know, Jerusalem's Caesarea there. And we'll find out what that part 7 is. But this is, that's basically going to be Herod going to Caesarea. And then 6 is basically what's happening. Right? And then um, 10, which is Barnabas returning to Antioch. With John Mark. We'll find out. So, those three apply to chapter 12 the rest of it was chapter 11 and so you can see all these things going on and actually now I think I really will stop right here but yeah it, it's it's um, you know uh, for example let me just go through this since uh, I know I'm saying I'm going to stop but for example number 2 
is Acts chapter 11, 19, and 20. So this number two here is Acts 11, 19 through 20. So if you want to write that down or you want to look at the map, you could download the PowerPoint today, the whole thing, so you could cheat next week. But you could uh, <laughs> download the whole thing today. And then there's that. Number three is 11, 23 to 24. So 23 to 24 is number three. Number four is 11, 25 through 26. So that's when Barnabas go gets, go gets Paul. Number five is uh, 1126. So that's why it's separate. That's why it has its own little number, because this is where the term Christian first started. Right? Uh, number six is chapter 12. Number seven is chapter 12. So I'm not going to spoil those. You can read the notes when you download the PowerPoint. Uh, number eight is Agabus and prophets from Jerusalem, warning of the famine. Warning of the famine. So that's basically Agabus turning here is number eight. And that's why it's in red, I guess, because it's in red. It's like, ah, you know, famine, right? Number nine is Barnabas and Paul sent to Judea with famine relief. So this is when you first hear the term elders. That's actually number nine in the map. So you see how it's, uh, I don't know if it took that exact route, but it's basically then going back, right, to Jerusalem. So uh, that's the map. And next week we'll start, finish up chapter two. Obviously, it's a short chapter two, but, uh, but it's also very powerful from a history perspective. But any thoughts, questions, anything you'd like to add on this chapter and couple of verses? Anything that stood out? Podcast, you could email your questions to at info at fpcrtca.com. Okay. Adrian, any questions? No. I, uh, I thought it was interesting to see that how I didn't realize or forgot how... Antioch was near the sea, and normally sea-dwelling cities have a tendency to be very liberal because of all of the different people that are coming in and out of it. Mm-hmm. And then they made that their focus because there were so many different people from around the world mm-hmm. well, going to that world meaning Roman yeah. Empire, right? Yeah. yeah. But even, I mean, going throughout the Mediterranean. Yeah. So that could be, you mm-hmm. know, to Africa, into... Later on, Rome. We know that Rome. You know, we will get to Rome, and then from there, it even goes up into Europe. Mm-hmm. So. Anything? Anything? I, 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 what stood out to me was uh, the. I've, I've always known the Bible to be historically accurate, but just how crazy accurate it is, like detail. like to the point where you know, other yeah, other manuscripts yeah. supported, outside writing supported. And so it just, it always baffles me when I started doing these studies how people like to discredit it when really, you know, when they, I just, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm crazy, but I think of it this way. When other people say, you know, outside writing support the Bible, I'm pretty sure there were, there, you know, these other writers, their primary source was probably the Bible because they weren't really, you know, think about it. Like, there's always a primary source and then there's other sources. And I wouldn't be surprised if these other people's primary source was actually you know, the book of the book of Acts. Obviously it wasn't put in a Bible back then, but then referring to the actual scriptures for their historical perspective, and that's why it supports it. Because they didn't have anything else. Nobody else was as detailed. You know, they they all acknowledged that Luke was pretty pretty accurate. You know, he wasn't he wasn't, you know you can see he's pretty detailed, right? So I don't know, for me, you know, it, it, it always it's like reading a history book with supernatural events that happened. I mean in our faith we, we you can't pick and choose the miracles. You either accept all of them or you don't. And when you accept all of them, you're seeing that when you read all these miracles in context, it's like, yeah, it must have happened because everything else is pretty accurate, right? So um, it just, to me, you know, as an unbeliever, really there's no excuse to not believe the Bible. It's, it's pretty powerful. And we'll see in chapter 12 how crazy it gets, but, you know, people's reaction I mean not only the historical context but then the human context the way people react is the same way people react today like unbelief they didn't believe that something like that could happen same thing we react the same way we don't believe it today we don't believe in miracles you know when I say Lord you know I felt the, the spirit of God is like yeah no, that's only biblical times. that doesn't happen now no it happens now and when you hear it people react the same way like no oh, no they didn't no they didn't you know the human, the human element is accurate the historical element is accurate you know, just about everything in the Bible is, is accurate to today's, even relevant to today's um, 
today is the world. It, we, you know, when we when we go to the world, it is just no different than it was back then. It's just no different. Right now, you know, we can call this coronavirus church thing persecution, but in other parts of the world, Christians are being killed. Yeah. So that hasn't stopped. Persecution hasn't ended. It's been two thousand years. Persecution is still around, alive and well, actually. You know, so why not believe the Bible? Why, what's it, your sin is holding you back? You know, our sin is holding us back from believing the Bible because we want to live our own way. We don't want to accept the the, 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 the rules that the Bible gives us. And you know what? And the Bible says it. And, and I, I, you know, I know for those listening, you know, I emailed uh, my friend Lazaro. I emailed an article. Uh, on the on the doctrine of hell, and that's, that's I do the men's study podcast, and that's what I'll be talking next. I want to plug the men's ministry here real quick, but I'm going to be doing a podcast on the doctrine of hell. And that's why I need you to read it so we can do this together. So, because um, I'm going to be doing the podcast, and uh, you know, yeah, we got to talk about hell. <laughs> we got to talk about what this what this place that the Bible talks about that that people are afraid to mention today. You know, the status of Christianity is because people are afraid to mention the word hell. It's too offensive. Well, that ship has sailed a long time ago, you know. That's why they're being persecuted. So, yeah. So, uh, you won't be hearing me, uh, podcast people. You won't be listening to me uh, teach anymore. I'll be Pastor Steve back next week. But if you enjoy the teachings, uh, please uh, listen to the Man's Ministry podcast. Uh, last couple of them I've done them by myself, but I want to start being a guest again. I'm going to put Lazar on the spot, see who wants to do it next month. And uh, But, yeah, we want to teach on the doctrine of hell and... Um, I think you'll get a lot out of it. It's not. It's not going to be. Well, actually, no. It will be. It will be fire and brimstone. But uh, but it's going to be in context, so it'll make sense. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, the hour's up. We're going to close it out in prayer. Uh, I'm going to close it out in prayer. I'm getting. I don't know if you guys heard the snap of the finger on the microphone, but it was there. So, uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, allowing us to. Uh, Learn your word today, Lord, and, uh, you know, to allow us to really open up your word and study it and, and you realize your supernatural involvement in human history you had, Lord. And, uh, we pray that these, these lessons and these events minister to our heart. It feeds our soul so that we could go out and preach it to a dying world, Father. We just thank you and we praise you and give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. <laughs>